Theology and Apologetics with Thomas Fretwell. Tonight and for the next few sessions, we, uh, we flew someone in from far away, thousands of miles that way actually, <laughs> thousands of miles uh, east from here, all the way from uh, southeastern England. Uh, we have with us Pastor Tommy Fretwell from Calvary Chapel Hastings. So, He's a previous speaker on apologetics and theology, and he's got an upcoming book that's coming out. We're kind of getting a preview of a lot of the things that are going to be in this book. And so, I believe the book title is Who Am I? Human Identity and the Gospel in a Confusing World. And so he's taken some of the content from that book, and uh, even before it's published, he's going to be showing us um, through five sessions, just kind of walking us through the different ideas the Lord has given him. So tonight we're going to talk about the foundation, the Word of God. Tomorrow morning, what does it mean to be human? Then our identity in Christ, we are loved and adopted by a holy God, and then also we are called discovering your purpose. And so let's go ahead and welcome Pastor Tommy Fretwell. Okay, well, thank you everyone. Good evening. It's a pleasure to be here. I always enjoy coming to the States. It's only my third time here, but I always have a, a wonderful time. <laughs> so, as was said, I, I'm from the south coast of England. My church is in a place called Hastings, and I actually live in a town called Battle. So some of you may have heard of Hastings, if you're a history buff, 1066, the Battle of Hastings, William the Conqueror, that's where we're from. It didn't actually happen in Hastings, it happened in the town Battle, which is a small town on the inland, which is where I live, and it's one of those very quintessentially British towns. It's one high street, we've got some of the oldest buildings there, dating to the 12th, 13th century, still standing. One pub, the oldest pub that's still operating since the 13th century. Um, and at the end of the high street we have the monastery, Battle Abbey which is like a castle, basically, dating back from uh, yeah, eight, nine hundred years. Uh, it's actually a school as well. It, it's a school at the moment. And in, in the area, it's known as Hogwarts. Um, <laughs> it simply is because it's, that's what they do on all their adverts. They advertise it like that because it's probably the nearest thing you'll get. Now, there's no magic, but there are lots of little well-spoken English children in blazers wandering around the, the town all the time. So it's, it's about all we get now. Confessions, I was one of those kids for a couple of years. Um, but I didn't appreciate it when I was young. But I would now. Anyway, that's enough about me. Like, like uh, the introduction said, we're talking about human identity um, and what does it mean to be human. These are some big topics, some, some area where there is huge confusion in this world. So I'm going to try and unpack this for you, give you a very broad overview. So we're just going to see what happens. There are no other speakers, it's just me, so... That's how we do it. Let's pray, and then we'll get into this. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this time. I thank you for this opportunity. I pray now, Lord, that you will use the words of my mouth, Lord. We pray for everyone here, Lord, that you'll give them hearts to understand, Lord, ears to hear. And we pray, Lord, this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Okay, so today... We're not really going to touch so much on what does it mean to be human. Today we're going to lay a foundation for you. I want to make sure as we move into this topic that obviously as Christians we have our feet firmly planted in the Word of God. Because when, I don't know what it's like in this country, but in my country there is a, 
quite often I meet Christians in churches, I, I speak at a lot of different churches, and something that always shocks me and saddens me is the attitude that the Bible seems to be a bit of an optional extra for Christianity. Uh, it may sound unusual, but I just, I just think that is the way. And when people are looking at issues that are thrust upon them from the culture, human identity is one of those issues that is all over the place at the moment. People tend to find their information from the web or from the culture, from people's opinions. And I want to make sure that we know that as Christians we have to have a biblical worldview. Okay, the Bible is not just a book of spiritual instruction that we use on Sundays. The Bible is a history book. It's a book of spiritual instruction. It's so much more than all these things too. And it has to be our foundation. It is that solid rock of a foundation. And that's, the, that's what we're going to lay. We're going to hopefully lay that foundation tonight. I'm just going to talk to you really about the Word of God. And we need to understand this as we look at the issue of human identity. It was John Calvin who said that a person may only see himself as he really is as he looks into the mirror of the Word of God. And that's how we're going to start looking at the subject of human identity. But I want to tell you a few stories first. I want to just share with you the story of Mary Jones and her Bible. Some of you may have heard this story. Uh, in, in my country you might have heard it, or in Wales, if you've, <laughs> you've probably heard it. She was, a rural, she was a young girl. She lived in the 1800s in the rural Welsh countryside. She grew up in a small kind of stone cottage that they had there. Her family was very poor. She lost her father when she was four. And she were, her and her mother worked every day just to survive. Every Sunday, Mary would walk two miles to the local chapel. And she remembers being enthralled with the words of the minister who would read from this big, large, leather-bound book on the pulpit. And after the service, this young girl would go up to the pulpit and look at this impressive book. And she recounts being unable to read. She remembers wishing that she could read the words for herself. And then one Sunday it was announced from her church that a circulating school would be visiting their area. A circulating school was one of those Christian initiatives of people who would go around and teach people to read and write. Um, it's said that the circulating schools were really responsible for making Wales a literate nation, uh, and it, as it was in much of the world today and still is. It's you know, Bible translation and ministers of the gospel who learn languages and teach people languages, and that's how it was uh, in the 1800s in Wales. Now, Mary knew her chance to learn to read the Bible. This was her only chance. So she enrolled in this school, and she'd rushed through her chores so that she could go to the schoolmaster's house about two miles away, and she, she learned to read pretty quick. Any spare time she got, she would trek over to the farmhouse to read their Bible. At age 10, she was determined to get a copy of the Bible for herself. So she set about doing every extra job she could for people around the village, sewing, collecting eggs, all sorts of things that they did. And for six years, she saved every penny she had until she finally had enough to buy a Bible. Obviously, the problem was you can't, there's, you know, there are no Christian bookshops. Christianbook.com did not exist in those days. So she heard that there was a man, a minister, who had Bibles for sale in a village that was 25 miles away. She was 16 at this time. So she gathered up her money, a small bit of food, and she started off on the 50-mile round trip through the, the rough terrain of the Welsh countryside. Again, she was so poor she didn't really even have shoes that would last this sort of a journey. And it was a dangerous thing. In, in, in this time, you didn't really travel outside of the safety of your, your little village. Um, but she was 16 and she did this. Her parents let her go because she was so determined. She finally made it to the village of Bala and she found the house of a minister called Thomas Charles. 
and he had these Bibles. Tragically, when she arrived, and he, she, he opened the door and she, exhausted, landed on his doorstep and somehow managed to recount her tales of what she was doing there, but he'd sold all of the Bibles that he had at that, mo- at that time. However, the man was so impressed with the young girl's faith, he was determined to get her a Bible, so he gave her lodging for three days in his house until a new shipment of Bibles arrived. And then when they arrived, he gave her three Bibles for the price of one. And the next morning she was so happy, she clutched her treasured possession, she started the journey home, and she arrived home to her small village to clap some cheers from all the people who were waiting for her to come home. That's Mary Jones. Now what goes on with this story is that this man, Thomas Charles, who sold her the Bible, was so impacted by this young girl's faith and desire to have a Bible that he knew he had to do something about it. And he asked the question, how many other Mary Joneses are there around the country or around the world that don't have access to the Word of God? And he went on to use this episode as inspiration and he started what, is, what was called the British and Foreign Bible Society, which is now just known as the Bible Society a worldwide organisation that's responsible for distributing over 8 million Bibles every single year and has translation activities in many parts of the world. Something that has impacted the world in a way that we can't even know. All from the faith of one 16-year-old girl, a peasant girl from a Welsh village, because she loved the Word of God. You see, (laughs) we don't have to be, you know, have these amazing sort of Billy Graham-style lifestyles You just have to be faithful and love the Word of God. And the Lord can use you to do amazing things. Now, if you go to the UK, the Bible Society officers, they still have one of her Bibles. It has her her handwriting in it and her name signed on the front. Mary Jones. Now, let me contrast that with you with another story. November the 9th, 1938. This was the infamous night of Kristallnacht. We've just had the 80th anniversary of this event. This was the the night of broken glass, for any of you that know that, the precursor to the Holocaust. This is where 1,400 synagogues were destroyed, many Jews were murdered, as basically German Nazi anti-Semitism seeped out onto the streets of Germany at this time. And the SS soldiers um, had their way in Germany. But one of the untold elements of this night It's not just the specific hatred that was directed against the Jewish people, it's the specific hatred that was directed against the Jewish Bible, the Word of God, the Torah, the Old Testament, at this time. Many Bibles were removed from the synagogues and brought out out into the public square where they were set alight to the cheers of the German people. Elsewhere, scrolls, Torah scrolls, were taken from the arks at the synagogues and thrown into rivers. In other places, the long tourist scrolls were rolled out and the Hitler youth would ride, take turns riding their bikes up and down them as a game, as they made, they made all the Jewish people watch. In other places, it's reported that night that Jewish men and women were sta- made to stand in a line and the tourist scrolls were stapled to their back and then they had to run the gauntlet through the, the sticks and the beating of the Nazi soldiers as the Torahs were ripped from their back. You see... The Bible has been loved more than any book in history and it's also been hated more than any book in history. And you don't have to be a Christian to acknowledge that fact. You just have to understand a bit of history. History testifies to this. It's a fact. It's a reality. There is something different about this book. You see, we live in a culture today, don't we, 
and generally pays very little attention to this book. In fact, it ridicules this book. Often it's seen as nothing more than an outdated, irrelevant text cobbled together by Iron Age peasants, to quote Sam Harris. It has nothing important to say to 21st century society. How could it? It was written so long ago in a pre-scientific age. And so I'm sure you've heard these sorts of arguments. On and on they go. Now, I would say nothing could be further from the truth. I could spend a lot of time up here telling you how the Bible is actually the most influential book in the history of the world. Even the History Channel, I did a recent uh, program called 101 Objects That Changed the World. And their number one object for the thing that had changed the world the most was, in fact, the Bible. It's undeniable. History testifies to it. The Bible is the world's best-selling book. It's the world's most translated book. It's a book that's confirmed by thousands of archaeological sites across the globe, and it's also the best attested ancient manuscript in all of history. From art to music, to education, to government, to morality, to law, to charity, healthcare, social reform, and the sanctity of life, the Bible has been influential in shaping civilization more than anything else in this world. It permeates every layer of our social fabric. And yet most people have absolutely no idea the Bible has this place in our life. Now if this is true, and it is true, then why do we see such hatred from the Bible? Why has the Bible been banned and burned more than any book in history? Why is it still illegal in many parts of the world today? Why could owning one in Tudor England get you sent to the stake? Why could owning, owning one in Stalin's Russia get you sent to the Gulag? And why is owning one in North Korea still punishable by death today? You see, the answer to this is actually quite simple. We should all know this answer. You find the answer in 2 Timothy 3.16. If you have a Bible, you can open there for me. Timothy 3.16 it says this all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching for reproof for correction and for training in righteousness so that the man of God may be complete for every good work you see the Bible is different because it comes from God and it's proved to be different in history quite simply because of that fact it is different God was involved in his production now, your Bible college students we call this a doctrine of inspiration I'm not going to go into it too much tonight, but obviously there was a human authorship, but God breathed out. The exhalation of God was one of the, the things that brought the scriptures into being. This is why the Bible is described as being living and active. That means the Bible is out there in the world, working. And again, history proves this. Everywhere the message of the Bible goes in the world, it changes cultures, nations and peoples. You can't deny it. So we have to ask ourselves, what is the message that this brings? You remember when Jesus was talking with the Pharisees in John 5:39 he said you search the scriptures because in them you think you have eternal life but it is they that testify of me you see the word of god testifies to the person of Jesus Christ and this is why wherever the gospel goes wherever the message of the bible goes it changes things because that's what Jesus came to do the theologian Sidlow Baxter put it like this he says fundamentally our lord's message was himself he did not come merely to preach a gospel. He himself is that gospel. He did not come merely to give bread. He said, I am the bread. He did not come merely to shed light. He said, I am the light. And he did not come merely to show the door. He said, I am the door. He did not come merely to name a shepherd. He said, I am the shepherd. He did not come merely to point the way. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. 
You see, history proves that the impact of the Bible is always in the greater direction, in the direction of greater love, justice and care for humanity. And this is one of the reasons for that is because of its teaching about what a human being is. And we'll touch on this as we go through all these sessions throughout this next few days. The main thing that the Bible does is it teaches that radical notion that all humans are created equal in the image of God. And this is the ultimate foundation for looking at human identity. You see, we live in a confused world. Okay? We're calling good evil and evil good. We don't know what right or wrong is anymore. We supposedly don't know what male and female are. We don't know <laughs> what up or down is. It's a confused world. And the confusion comes when people step away from the authority of the word of God. Okay? And as Christians, we need to make sure that we do not follow that, tar- that path. We have to stand unashamedly on the word of God. You see, when the word of God goes out into people's intonations, it transforms people's hearts. It brings the kingdom of light into this kingdom of darkness and it will bring clarity where confusion reigns. And our, my book is called The Gospel in a Confusing World because if any of you are like me, you watch the news <laughs> and I get confused about how people can be so confused. It seemingly just never ends at the moment. News report after news report. The answer to this sounds very simple, is the word of God. Okay, so you lot are here studying, imbibing, meditating, feeding on the word of God. And you will be the ones that have that word of God to take with you. You know, Mary Jones, she loved the word of God so much and the Lord used that faith to transform. He's still using it, the Bible Society is still very active today. On and on it goes. If you could turn with me, please, to 1 Peter chapter 1. We're going to use this as a base text for some other things that we go through. 1 Peter 1, verse 22. It says, Since you have, in obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. For you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable, that is, through the living and enduring word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls off, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word that was preached to you. Verse 22. In obedience to the truth, you have purified your souls, therefore love one another. You see, through the living and enduring word of God, when we live in obedience to it, it produces love. Love for one another and also love for the world. How can it not? It comes from a God who is love. It testifies to the person of Jesus Christ, who so loved the world. This is what it produces in us when we live in obedience to the word of God. There was a woman named Mary Slessor, a Victorian mill girl who left the slums of Dundee to take over David Livingstone's work in Africa. Livingstone was the famous missionary explorer. Uh, He was her hero and she continued his work in Africa. She lived among the people of Nigeria her entire life, serving them, telling them about the gospel and being salt and light in what was then a very dark culture. Tribal people at that time believed that if a woman gave birth to twins, one of those twins was the offspring of a demon that had secretly mated with the mother. And since the innocent child was impossible to distinguish from the demonic child, they would simply kill both the children. 
And quite often they would just kill the mother for good measure, just in case, to be sure. This was a very, very common practice. And it was Mary Slessor, this Christian, uh, mil Christian girl who was in Africa and was fighting this. She used to rescue these twins, basically, that's what she did. There are still statues of Mary Slessor around Nigeria and places today. Now this came to light in a very unusual way just in 2010 during London Fashion Week. Now London Fashion Week is not a place where you would generally get Victorian missionaries being talked about. Absolutely not. But there were two Nigerian-born designers, Bun Mi Alaye and Francis Udum. And they had some very unusual uh, fashion. There was kind of Victorian dress mixed with different sort of African tribes. Uh, the particular ones where Mary Slessor lived. And they actually named Slessor as one of the, the muses for their collection. And they were obviously interviewed about this because it was unusual. And they were asked why they decided to do this. And it turned out that one of these ladies' great-grandmas was born a twin, and it was Mary Slessor that saved her. All those years ago, and yet in 2010, we're still having testimony to her. It's very similar to Mary Jones hundreds of years later, what their faith accomplished and what the Lord is doing through it is still reverberating through history and having a witness in this world. Obedience to the word of God changes things. You see, this is why the Bible has been at the root of most human rights movements in history. The most famous one, the African slave trade, one of the evilest things in history. I'm sure you all know the story of William Wilberforce. Uh, you've probably seen the film Amazing Grace, the Christian parliamentarian who spearheaded the fight to abolish slavery. It was a long, hard, arduous battle. But one of the parts that's often not told of this story is the spiritual help that he had behind the scenes. You see, William Wilberforce had two spiritual giants of the faith advising him. The slave, tra the slave trader turned preacher and hymn writer John Newton was one of his spiritual advisors. And early in his Christian uh, parliamentary career, Wilberforce struggled with the concept of being a Christian and a politician at the same time. And I find this very interesting. You know, this was all the way back then. There was still a struggle in this man's soul. Can he accurately be a politician and be a Christian? Now, in the UK, we had a very interesting event recently. One of the leaders in the last elections of our major political parties was a Christian. And he was um, the head of a party that was called, they're called the Liberal Democrats. Um, so they're generally kind of more on the, the left side, they're more, li more liberal. Um, and he had to resign his post, and he gave a very, very touching speech, basically saying it's, he is unable to be a Christian and be the head of this political party. Um, still today, Wilberforce had the same issue, the same tension in his soul. But it was John Newton who came to him with these words on his lips, he said, God has raised you up for the good of the church and the good of the nation. Maintain your friendship with Pitt, who's the Prime Minister. Continue in Parliament. Who knows that but for such a time as this, God has brought you into public life and has a purpose for you. Now, any of you astute Bible students, you'll recognise those words. For such a time as this. Those are the words of Mordecai to Queen Esther. After 10 years of fighting, the abolitionists thought they had enough support in Parliament to get their bill passed. But their opponents offered free opera tickets to the bill's supporters on the same night so they would not be in the House to vote. And the bill was defeated by four votes. 
You see, politics was still dirty back then. And people still would rather have free stuff than vote on something to end one of the vilest things in human history. This caused William Wilberforce to have a nervous breakdown and his physical health collapsed. A lot of these parts of the story aren't often told in the drama, dramatised versions that we get. And again, it was John Newton who came to him with words of the book of Daniel on his lips. Daniel, he explained, was a public man like Wilberforce. And like Wilberforce, he found himself in great difficulty. But Daniel trusted in the Lord and was faithful. And therefore, even though he thought he had enemies, none could prevail against him. And Newton told Wilberforce, quote, The God whom you serve continually is able to preserve and deliver you, and he will see you through. Now again, you may recognise that, that little phrase, the God whom you serve continually. That is the words of the Persian king to Daniel when he's about to be thrown into the lion's den. The God whom you continually serve will save you. The word of God. Now, Wilberforce had another counsellor, and his name was John Wesley. And John Wesley actually wrote his very last letter to William Wilberforce. And in it, this is a small portion of it, he said this, Unless God has raised you up for this very thing, you will be worn out by the opposition of men and devils. But if God be for you, who can be against you? Are all of them together stronger than God? Oh, be not weary of well-doing. Go on in the name of God and in the power of his might, till even American slavery, the vilest thing the sun ever saw, shall vanish away before it. If God be for you, who can be against you? Romans chapter 8, again, coming from John Wesley. After 50 years of fighting, February the 26th, 1833, the Emancipation Bill passed its second reading in Parliament as Wilberforce lay on his deathbed. You see, it was his Christian faith, obviously, that motivated him to take up the fight because he believed all people were created in the image of God. Whether it's Schlesser, rescuing children, Wilberforce, or anyone else, we could all give, there's lots of examples we could give from Christian history. It is the word of God that changes people's hearts. And the message of Christ brings change to this world. When we live in obedience to the truth, we purify ourselves, but not only ourselves, the surroundings that we live in as well. It says in Corinthians, doesn't it, that we actually become living epistles. Living epistles, not written with ink, but written with the Spirit of God. We're salt and light. Matthew chapter 5. That's what Jesus says. You're salt and light. But he also warns that the salt can become tasteless. And it's good for nothing when that happens. You see, it's as we live obedient lives, as we adorn the doctrines of Christ, as it says in Titus, we allow the word of God to influence the world through us. And we are acting as salt, that preservative, that influence, the things like Wilberforce and Slesser were doing. That was, an act that, that was witness to this fact. And these things cannot be denied, even by people who don't share our personal faith in Jesus Christ. There was a very interesting article in the Times, it's a, a newspaper in the UK. It was written by an atheist called Matthew Paris. He's an atheist and he's also one of the leading homosexual rights activists in the UK. And he wrote this, it was... It was he was roundly castigated by his fellow atheists for writing this, but he wrote it. He said, Before Christmas I returned after 45 years to the country that as a boy I knew as a Nyasaland. Today it's called Malawi. It inspired me 
renewed my flagging faith in development charities, but travelling in Malawi refreshed another belief I've been trying to banish all my life, but an observation I've been unable to avoid since my African childhood. It confounds my ideological beliefs, stubbornly refuses to fit my worldview, and has embarrassed my growing belief that there is no God. And now a confirmed atheist, I've become convinced of the enormous contribution that Christian evangelism makes in Africa. Sharply distinct from the work of secular NGOs, government projects and international aid. These alone will not do. Education and training will not do. In Africa, Christianity changes people's hearts. It brings a spiritual transformation. The rebirth is real. The change is good. Unbelievable, coming from a, an atheist, that he can write like that and he can see it, but yet still reject it. Thus is the freedom of man. You see, let me come back to that question. <laughs> if it's so obviously doing so many things like this that are good in the world, we have to ask that question again. Why do people hate it so much? Why do people want to ridicule the Word of God? They fiercely resist the message of the Bible. And this is a question that will shed much light onto what goes on in the world today. John chapter 12, 46 to 48. Jesus says, I've come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. You see, the word of God holds people accountable. It will judge people. You see, on large, we live in rejection of God in our culture at the moment. In my culture, definitely. Unless we have been forgiven by the gospel, we will be judged by God. You see, this is reality. And this is why we see so much hatred directed against the word of God. We refer to it as the cosmic authority problem. There's an atheist called Thomas Nagel. He wrote a book called Mind and Cosmos. Again, one that made him very unpopular with his own circles. It was a book against naturalism as a failure to account for all of reality. And in that book he says this, It isn't just that I don't believe in God and naturally hope that I'm right in my belief. It's that I hope there is no God. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that. And what he means by that is exactly what Jesus was getting at there. He does not want to be accountable to something above himself. And this is the humanistic creed. And this is a mistake this is a misunderstanding of humanity. That's why all of these issues that we see playing out, at some point they boil back down to this issue of what does it mean to be human. And tomorrow I'm going to show you what happens when you reject the word of God. And we're going to look at some of these things play out in the world. You see, the universe is like that. God is real. And again, we live in a culture, a day and age, when even within Christian circles, it's very easy for us to maybe reshape God a little bit to our own likening. Just to update things a little bit. The Bible's a little bit out of date here, we need to update this part. That part's not really for us anymore. On and on these sorts of things go. The you know, book gets written that denies something and it sells and becomes a bestseller. Um, usually denying one or another parts of the word of God. You see, when we do that, what we usually do is we lower the parts of God that make us uncomfortable and we raise ourselves at the same time and we create God in our own image. It's very easy to do. And as soon as we do that, 
We step away from the authority of the word and as salt, we become saltless. We become useless. When we sacrifice the word of God on the altar of political correctness, when we start to call evil things good and good things evil, when we settle for a lower revelation of God than what scripture provides. I hear many people in the UK, the UK, it's very anti-God, if you've ever been to the UK at the moment, it's a very, very secular country. And on the rise is spiritualism. People are more than happy to maybe kind of acknowledge that there's some sort of spiritual life. And they use the term God even. But there's a disconnect between Christians who are trying to communicate to this culture because we say God and we have a picture in our mind that comes from the Bible. They say God and they have a different picture in their minds. So I always like to ask people, can you define the God you're talking about for me? Because I don't think we're going to go any further in this conversation until we do. And if they won't define it, then I'll define my God. Our God is the creator God. This is the God we have revealed to us in Scripture. He's the one who spoke the very universe into existence by the word of his power. He's the one who holds all things together, eternal, immortal, holy and righteous. He's the Lord of hosts, the one who is so set apart that no one or anything can compare to him. And he's the one that's seated above all thrones, all principalities and all powers. He's the covenant-keeping God of Israel, the one who keeps his covenant to a thousand generations, loving, merciful, slow to anger and abounding in loving-kindness. And he's the one that loved us so much that he was willing to step down from that rightful place, from the glory of the throne room in heaven, and enter this creation as a helpless infant. The one who was falsely accused, persecuted, beaten, mocked, scorned by the same ones he loved. He allowed himself to suffer that humiliating death, the death of a Roman cross, as the sins of the world were placed upon his shoulders. He's the God who, with his last breath, uttered words of forgiveness for those he loved. Yet it's the same God who the Bible declares had victory and he was declared to be the Son of God by power through the resurrection of the dead. The one who is now exalted to the highest place, having disarmed all principalities and powers, he is now given the name above all names and it is before him that one day every knee will bow. That's who we have. Amen. That's the God who we worship. That's who it is you're here to learn about as you feed and you study the word of God. And with a God like that, is it any wonder when people take his living word out into the world, you see people and nations and hearts transformed. It could be no other way with a God like that. Verse 24, back in 1 Peter now. 23 and 24. It says, For you have not been born again, you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is through the living and enduring word of God. The living and enduring word of God. Or Hebrews 4.12, the living and active word of God. And it goes on. All flesh is like grass, all the glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, the flower falls off, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word which was preached to you. This eternal word was that which was preached to you. Remember in Romans 10, 17, what does it say? Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. You see, the word is alive. The word is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, like it says in Hebrews. Now, when it says living, that means it has vital power inherent to itself. It brings about lasting, supernatural change. It brings forth life. Remember Jesus, the parable of the sower? 
plants these seeds, the seed is the word of God, and it brings forth fruit, brings forth uh, different fruit. It brings life, and it's active. That means it's on the move. It brings change along with life. It reminds me of Colossians 1, verses 5 and 6. It says, Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel which has come to you, just as in all the world it also is constantly bearing fruit and increasing. The gospel, once it goes out, once the word of God is unleashed, it is constantly bearing fruit throughout the world. I think of what Mary, what Mary Jones did back in the 1800s. It's still bearing fruit in this world today. And I believe it will be until the Lord returns. This word can also mean that it's capable of exerting influence. You see, God wants his words not only to have influence over our lives and change them from the inside and for the better and ultimately bring us closer to him, but the word of God will influence, in effect, cultures. We see the living word active throughout the pages of scripture. We can see that his word, when spoken, convicted people of their sin, converted their hearts, raised the dead to life, made the deaf to hear, the blind to see, the mute to speak, and the lame to walk. This is the word of God. Now what more can we say except I agree really with the psalmist in Psalm 119 where he says, my my heart stands in awe of your words. And I find that to be true. The more I study the word of God, the more I see things like this, the more I look at the bankruptcy of the culture and the alternatives that people are being offered for the word of God, we can do nothing but stand in awe of the word of God. I rejoice at your word as one who finds great spoil. I hate and despise falsehood because I love your law. 1 Peter 2, let's move on in just the first few verses of chapter 2. Therefore, putting aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. By it you may grow in respect to salvation. You see, in light of the eternal and living glory of his word, we are to remove and lay aside the sins of our life. We don't just study the word of God to increase our knowledge. Now, I think it's it's a very good thing to increase your knowledge of the word of God as much as you can, any opportunity you have. But we don't do that simply as a means for itself. We do that because we want it to change us. Confronting the God of Scripture will require change in our lives. Psalm 119. I'm sure many of you know this verse. It's a great verse to memorize. How can a young man keep his way pure? by keeping it according to your word. With all my heart I have sought you. Do not let me wander from your commandments. Your word I have treasured in my heart that I might not sin against you. Now in my young Christian life, uh, I have six people in my family. We grew up, we were not Christians. I never even met a Christian until I was in my 20s. Gives you a little clue of what, what our culture is like. Never even met a Christian until I was 20s. I have six people in my family. All of us are saved now. I was the last one in my family to get saved. And this verse was very dear to me in my first few years as becoming a Christian because I know it practically. Hiding the word of God in your heart so that you do not sin against God. Now when I came to Christ, I was doing a lot of drugs. I was doing a lot of different things. I had a lot of problems in my life. And I came to Christ and the Lord delivered me of various things but there were still some things, you know, that were just hanging on as the Lord was untangling me from the word. And I remember going to Christians and asking advice you know, what, what's your favourite Bible verse? Very simple, simplistic questions that you'd expect from a new believer. Uh, and generally, 
Uh, we knew a few Christians now through my, through my family had been saved before me. Um, I wasn't really getting answers of how to, un- you know, sanctification is a process. I didn't really understand this then. But this verse was shown me by someone. And I took it very literally. I made a list of all the verses in the Bible of things that I was struggling with and I memorised them. My wife's a graphic designer. She made beautiful cards for me and I used to carry them around in my pocket. And I memorised them. And everyone just does that on their phones nowadays. Right? But <laughs> cards are better. One thing I found is that when the Word of God was in my heart, it comes up when you need it most. If it's not in your heart, that cannot happen. Or it didn't happen in my life anyway. And I, I presume that's probably the same in most people's. But when you take the time to put the Word of God in your heart, the Word of God will change you. You see, that's why we are to desire the pure milk of the Word of God. You see, it's the, gro- it's the source of our growth. It's our spiritual food, it's our life, it's our nourishment, it's our encouragement and it's our hope all in one. Obviously because it points to, the, the, you know, to Jesus Christ. The word desire or long, it's a very strong word there in the Greek. It's used to sort of um, talk about man's deepest longing for God. That famous verse, Psalm 42, As the deer pants for the water brooks, so my soul pants for you, O God. It speaks of the desire each believer should have for the word of God. Now, do we have that desire for the Word of God? Do we actually long for it above all else in this world? Because we should do. Now, I know, obviously, I'm practical. We don't a lot of the times. One thing I was told in my early Christian life, and it's it's a prayer I pray pretty much every day. It comes from Psalm 119, verse 18. It says, Open my eyes, Lord, that I may see wondrous things from your law. Open, this is a Psalm of David, a prayer of David open my eyes Lord that I may see wondrous things from your law and the Lord has been faithful to me in that prayer and to this day the joy of studying the word of God is still one of the greatest pursuits that I have in the Christian life and it comes from a simple prayer open my eyes and I would suggest that all of you pray that prayer for your own personal life and keep doing it every day of your life I did a youth event uh, in England recently uh, you know, about 100 young people from all over the country and we did like an evening Q&A and one of the questions that one of these young people asked me, and it took me a little by surprise because obviously a lot of the questions, you know, how should we deal with the transgender movement, evolution, you know, typical apologetic questions. And this, this one question was, should we be willing to die for the word of God? Should we be willing to die for the word of God? It, it was a blunt question. Now, what I believe they were getting at is, is it worth dying for? Ultimately, how valuable is it? Because for people, you know, we have Bibles coming out our ears, don't we? We've got more Bibles than we know what to do with. And that, in some way, if we're not careful, can make it seem like it's not particularly valuable. Now, I had to think a little bit how I answered this question. Obviously, I, you know, to a group of young people, I don't just want to say yes. <laughs> and, you know, as, quite as clean cut as that, they have a lot of issues going on in their lives. I read Psalm 138, verse 2, which says, For you have magnified your word according to all your name. You have magnified your word according to all your name. Now, is the name of God important? What's the commandment? You shall not take the name of your Lord God in vain. There's nothing more important than the name of God. And there's nothing more important than the word of God. I then told a story. There's a codex. A codex is like an early gospel book. It's called Codex Beratinus. 
I'm a, I'm a bit of a Bible geek, so I, I love the, all these sorts of manuscript stories. It's a 6th century codex, and it contains only Matthew and Mark, and it's held in the National Archives of Albania. It's very special because it's known as a royal codex. Now, there's only a handful of royal codex that exist in the world today. So a royal codex was something that was written on vellum, like most Bibles or ancient manuscripts were, but the vellum was then dyed purple. Okay, purple obviously is a colour associated with royalty, still is to this day. He would, you know, speaks, shows you the respect that the early church had for the Gospels. They would dye this manuscript purple. However, it was even more amazing than that, they writ the Gospels in silver ink. Purple vellum with silver ink. And then even more amazing than that, every time they got to what was called a nomina sacra, a sacred name, which is a, a thing they used to do in ancient manuscripts where they would abbreviate like the name of God. And in this manuscript, they did it for God, they did it for Lord, they did it for Jesus, and they did it for Christ, showing that they clearly believed the full divinity of those things. So they'd have a purple manuscript, they'd write it in silver ink, and every time they got to the name of God, they would stop and they would write it in gold ink. Can you imagine how beautiful that is? The, the, the time that must have gone into that manuscript, it's what they considered uh, you know, the word of God to be worthy of. Now, during World War II, Hitler learned of this manuscript and he sorted out. Some of you have probably seen the Monument Men. There was, you know, what the Nazis did as they looted Europe as they went around, took loads of, uh, they, they loved to collect uh, the art of Europe. And he, he heard about this manuscript and he wanted it. And at that time, it was housed in a monastery in Berat in Albania. So he sent the soldier, he sent his Nazis to the monastery. And they took out the monks and they lined them up. They put them on their knees and they held guns to their head. And they threatened to shoot them if they did not reveal its whereabouts. Now all of these monks deflected the soldiers' queries and they did it so convincingly that even the SS soldiers were not willing to shoot them all in the head that day. They believed them. They were so convincing that they believed them and they let them all live. And the abbot of the monastery tells a story that the very next morning, unusually, he was greeted by a long line of monks outside of his office door, all of them wanting to come to confession because they'd all lied, because they all knew where this manuscript was. <laughs> but I find it interesting because they were all willing to be shot in the head for this, for this manuscript. Now, I was just using this as an example. They were willing to die for this precious treasure. You see, today this codex is a number, it's a number one national treasure of Albania. They have it on the back of their coins. Uh, the codex is registered with UNESCO the United Nations uh, organisation, as a world treasure. Now, of course, they don't understand its true value. <laughs> they, they value it just as a historical object. And we know that it's not just the, the words, the purple vellum and the silver ring. We know that it's actually the words and what they say because they're words of life. And truly, the Bible is a world treasure. We long for the pure milk of the word of God. You see, we need to receive this milk for the good of ourselves individually, and for the health of our churches. We do not want to raise a generation of malnourished Christians. And believe me, you can get malnourished Christians. If you are not feeding on the pure word of God, your spiritual life will suffer. Psalm 12, verse 6, The words of the Lord are pure words, as silver tried in a furnace on the earth, refined seven times. You see, part of the problem, I believe, like I mentioned before, is that we have so much that we don't appreciate what we do have. It's become so common in our, in our culture. Um, it still is, even in Christian circles in the UK. I'm sure it's, it's, it's more here. We're so saturated 
We have more Bibles than ever before, but yet the, the culture is becoming more and more illiterate, biblically, than ever before. That's a paradox. Why is that? I believe it comes back to these issues. Do we long for the Word of God higher? Is it a world treasure in our life? In the time of Wycliffe in England and Tyndale, so 13th and 15th century, or 16th century, these two men, they both desired and dedicated their lives to making sure that the public, the, the, the common man, could have access to the Word of God. You see, the people earnestly desired the Word of God because they couldn't have it. Uh, people used to spend a week's wages to borrow a Wycliffe manuscript for one hour. This was the going rate in, a small, in Wycliffe, so 13th century. If there was one person, maybe one person in a town would, would be able to have one of these handwritten smuggled manuscripts and you would spend an entire week's wages just to sit with that manuscript for one hour. This is how people wanted the Word of God when they had been starved of the Word of God for so long. Tyndale's Bible was declared illegal in England. Many of you probably know the history. But it was smuggled into England through the London docks in bales of hay from the continent where Tyndale had fled to do his translation work. Now interestingly, the Bishop of London, a man called Bishop Tunstall, he was the man that Tyndale first approached with the idea saying, can I translate the Bible? And Tunstall said, nope. And then Tyndale obviously fled to the continent and he did his translation there. And now these Bibles were coming back into England and the bishop was not happy about this. He wanted to get hold of every illegal copy of Tyndale's Bible that he could and he would burn them in front of St. Paul's Cathedral. Now again, this is a paradox to me. This is the Bishop of London burning Bibles in front of St. Paul's Cathedral. This happened. But don't understand that. But in a twist of divine irony, Bishop, the Bishop Tunstall, he approached a merchant who worked at the ship and he basically said to him, the Bishop had a lot of power in those days, he said, I want you to go down. I can't go to the docks. They, know, you know, they won't sell Bibles to me. You can. I want you to go to the docks and buy every illegal Bible you can for me. Now the merchant obviously being in a position you can't really refuse. The, the, what such was the power of the church at that time. However, unbeknown to the bishop that this merchant was actually a friend of William Tyndale. So he went to William Tyndale, quite upset, uh, and told him what had happened, and obviously explaining, you know, he couldn't refuse, or else he'd implicate his own himself and his business and his, probably his life at that time. Now, to his surprise, William Tyndale was very happy. And he said, that's fine. You can do that. You can buy all the Bibles. Just one thing. The price has just doubled. The money he made from the sales of the Bibles that were to be burnt financed the second revised edition of the Tyndale Bible. <laughs> that was much more popular than the first. It reminds me of that verse, 2 Timothy 2.10, for which I suffer hardship even to imprisonment as a criminal, but the word of God is not imprisoned. You can't imprison the Word of God because it's living and active. It's in the world. It's constantly bearing fruit. Tyndale died for his love for the Word of God. And I'm sure, remember if you've read Fox's Book of, Book of Martyrs, that famous picture of Tyndale when he's tied to the stake and he utters those famous last words, Lord, open the King of England's eyes. And if you've seen that in the Fox, Fox's Book of Martyrs, you've seen that picture. That was his last prayer. Lord, open the King of England's eyes. Now this prayer was answered just two years later. For the first time in English history, Henry VIII, the king at that time, commissioned the first state-authorised Bible. It's called the Great Bible. It was a massive Bible. 
Not only that, but he ordered a copy of this Bible to be put into every single church in England at expense of the crown. Yet two years earlier, they were burning Tyndale for translating the Bible. But through this, a Bible got into every parish in England. If you go to the British Library today, you can see Henry VIII's personal copy of the Great Bible. It's an amazing, like, illuminated manuscript. It's just a beautiful Bible. But that was Henry VIII's personal copy. Long for the pure milk of the word. And then it says, just finally, if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. Now those of us who are saved, we can safely say we have tasted the kindness of the Lord. You see, in the word of God, we experience Jesus because he is the word made flesh. And when we, as spirit-filled Christians, come to the word of God, quite literally, the supernatural is with us. I'll end by just reading you a quote from... Tozer, his book Jesus is Victor it's a great book he says this, the question is this and I want us to all ask ourselves these questions what are we allowing the word of God to say to us and what is our reaction to that word have we consumed and digested this book, have we absorbed the word of God into our lives or are we among those content to be part of a Christian congregation where there are no extreme demands, where fellowship will be consistently pleasant yet without responsibility when we as Christians Love the Lord Jesus Christ with heart, soul and mind. The word of God is on our side. If we could only grasp the fact that God's word is more than a book, it is the revelation of divine truth from the person of God himself. It has come as a divine communication in the sacred scriptures. It has come to us in the guidance and conviction imparted by the spirit of God within our beings. It has been modelled for us in Jesus Christ, the incarnate word and the eternal son. This is the word of God. This is why when we get to the end of this book, in the book of Revelation or Matthew 20, 24, when we see that glorious picture of our Lord Jesus Christ coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory, what does it say in Revelation 19? It says that on his thigh will be written a new name. And it says his name will be called the Word of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for this time. And I pray now that as we, we use this as our foundation for the next four talks or over the next two days, that you would really uh, equip our hearts, Lord, inspire us, Lord, and speak to us, encourage us and edify us, Lord God, by your wonderful word. We thank you, Lord God, in Jesus' name and for his sake we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more resources, please go to thomasfretwell.com.